Welcome to Good Life Project, where we take you behind the scenes for in-depth, candid conversations with artists, entrepreneurs, makers, and world shakers. Here's your host, Jonathan Fields. Hi, I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. My guest today is Aviva Ram, who is a, a functional medicine doc who's kind of on the cutting edge of really figuring out and deconstructing health and exploring ideas like food as medicine and all sorts of other heretical things. So awesome to be hanging out with you. <laughs> really nice to be here with you too. The show is sponsored by meditation app 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author, Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. So, um... I want to learn more about your personal journey a little bit first. Mm -hmm. And then I actually want to like, let's pinpoint some really interesting things that a lot of people have come to me with. And I'm sure like, I'd love mm -hmm. to, I'm also really curious about like, what are some of the big things that you explore and you work with people on every day, but yeah. tell me more about you. So right now you're hanging out, you're practicing mm -hmm. this kind of fascinating world of functional medicine. First, tell me what functional medicine is. And then I want to take a little bit of a step back with you to find out how you got here. Mm, okay. So functional medicine to me is summed up best by the functional medicine tagline, which is amazing, which is changing the medicine we do and the way we do medicine. And so it's about looking at connectivity instead of separation. So for example, I'll give you a, a true story from my practice. I have a little girl in my practice who's five. She had a fever a year ago. Normal pediatric recommendations from the pediatrician, put the baby on around the clock ibuprofen and Tylenol. And Fever passed, cold passed, all went fine. But about a month later, the five-year-old ended up with horrible gastritis. She had inflammation in her stomach, really sick, stomach pain all the time. Had to be put on this medicine called Prilosec, which is one of the most popularly prescribed right, medications yeah, yeah, now. It's even, yeah, yeah, it's even prescribed for like six-week-old babies for reflux, which may be appropriate sometimes. Right, okay. But anyway, so my little patient, cutie girl, fast forward another month, ends up with joint swelling in her knuckles, her wrists, her knees. She basically had arthritis. And the pediatrician said, well, let's just keep her on the stomach medication and then we'll get to treating the joint problem mm -hmm. later as if it was like true, true, true and unrelated, yeah. right? Whereas in my worldview and how we see things in functional medicine, this is actually really connected and both are really treatable. So I see kids like this frequently and some of them end up on medications like methotrexate, some pretty intense immunosuppressive medications that have their big guns with big consequences. Huh. Whereas what I did with this little girl was just talk with mom about diet, 
some simple herbal medicines to, you know, just to heal her gut, getting her off this medication that was like suppressing stuff going on in her body. And mm. voila, a few months later, she's got no joint swelling confirmed by the rheumatologist and pediatrician, no stomach ache. She's completely off the medication. So it's, it's looking at that connectivity of systems. And then it's also really looking at the whole person. Mm. So it's all about and for little kids, usually life is pretty good. You know, sometimes yeah. they're stressed, but sometimes there isn't. Like I've got another little kid in the practice who's really struggling with some stuff and mom and dad are going through a big time relationship kind of mm. debacle and divorce. And sometimes these things play out in people's lives. Yeah. So we, we kind of take like a bottom up and a top down view of like looking at how your life affects your health, how your effects, health affects your life and right. all the pieces in between. So it's, it's less like treat the symptom on a pinpoint level and it's more okay what's going on systemically that may be yes. producing all of these symptoms and is there some way to sort of like function on that exactly level? and it's also like we do treat symptoms because we want people to be comfortable right, while they're getting yeah. well and then there's this whole piece of like looking at the person in the context of their environment and in their world right so people are hearing a lot about probiotics and the microbiome these mm. days so we look at that and we take a really big picture view like are you getting food that's got that's organic that has an opportunity for like organisms to grow it's right. really like looking at the whole life it's really fun yeah no it sounds amazing and it sounds yeah. also i mean it sounds like some overlap also um at one point <laughs> i looked at doing like so many different things about that, but at one point i was sort of like going down the the Chinese medicine and yeah. acupuncture, rat and herbalist rabbit hole, and I did, I did a whole bunch of research on the field. And one of the things that was appealing to me was that, you know, if you go to somebody like that, um, they'll ask you what your symptoms are. Mm -hmm. But then it kind of like the the diagnostic process is not so much symptoms based. Mm -hmm. It's really they just look at the big like the energetic systems, meridian yes. stuff, and they're looking for the systemic things, and they just assume that if they treat the systemic problems. The symptoms are going to re resolve themselves. Absolutely. So it's, it's like there's an interesting overlay there, I think, to yeah, a certain extent. Definitely. And Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, they get really cool on other aspects, too, that functional medicine sort of looks at, but it's more the individual functional medicine doctor. Like I look at it because my background is herbal medicine, so that right. includes some training in Chinese medicine. Um, but actually looking, like you said, at the energetics of the person. So a lot of patients, they'll come in, like, I tried every diet, you know, I tried vegan, I tried this, I tried that, and... I just can't lose weight or I can't clear up whatever my symptoms are. But sometimes it's, you have to look at the energetic piece. Like maybe that morning shake is too damp for that person. Hmm. They need something more warming in the morning. Right? Right. Like they need some ginger tea, not a cold yeah. smoothie. So. Which is definitely not what I, would, what I would assume most functional medicine docs would be like going to that place also. I mean, right. Which yeah, is kind of that's how definitely I got the Chinese medicine influence yeah. moving in there. Exactly. And it's sort of how I got brought into functional medicine. It was a big open invitation. So my background is midwifery and herbal medicine. And then I went to med school when I came out, there were a bunch of offers from functional medicine practices. I think they really saw some gem also in what I was doing and had to bring into it, which was that botanical medicine piece, kind of a woman centered approach. And then this energetic piece. So let's talk about this since yeah, you just yeah. brought it up the woman centered approach. Mm -hmm. Take me deeper. What is it and how is it different and why, is, sure. why does it matter? Why would people want that? Yeah. So I think the context of a woman-centered approach really came out of 
a time that's a little bit different than now. Like there weren't as many cool guys like you, right? Yeah. Who are clearly just I don't know, you have to stop. With their feminine. I don't know if I like qualify it in the way under like the cool label, but, but it's it was sort of the women's center of approach has <laughs> you know, that is sort of a rebound of a very sort of patriarchal model of medicine, which is don't worry, honey, I'll take care of that symptom for you. Don't worry your pretty little head about it. You know, and that that ran through everything from like obstetrics to general general yeah. medicine. And a woman-centered approach, really, it can be practiced by anyone. You don't have to be a woman. It's really a patient-centered. It's a listening-centered. It's, it's about connection. Mm. You know, not just tell me what your symptoms are and let me write a prescription for you, but I want to hear who you are. Mm. And, you know, you push the pad and the pen away or you push the computer away and you like sit back and listen because you really want to know because there's healing and connection. Right? There's healing yeah. that comes from what some people call placebo, but I think that there's something else going on there. Mm, right. um, I know you, you talk about somewhere in, in some of your work or a video you have about emotional contagion. Yeah. And I think emotional contagion, that, that connection, that heart-centered feeling that a, a physician can have, which yeah. has been more associated with sort of a womanly kind of way of connecting. Um, is where that woman-centered approach comes from. But it's really just about human connection and hearing yeah. the story, listening for the clues of the health problem in the story um, or the clues of the imbalance in the life that may lead to certain food choices, for example, or not sleeping well or any number of things. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you brought up emotional contagion. Um, there, There's another really kind of psychological effect that fascinates me called the Pygmalion effect. Mm, tell me. And um, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but my understanding is that Pygmalion effect is essentially um, well. Here's a case study to sort of like the, the example that I was I was taught to, to illuminate it. So researchers went into a classroom, mm -hmm. you know, teachers, little kids, and they basically they test all the little kids. Then they tell the teachers, listen, like these whatever number X number of kids, these five kids tested off the charge genius. Oh, I've heard this. Yes. Right, but you can't tell them and you can't right. treat them differently. Mm -hmm. Right, and then they actually track the behavior and they have the cameras and. And then at the end of the season, and then the semester, they tested all the kids again, mm -hmm. and these five kids test off the charge, mm -hmm. you know, like smart. And but, but you know, like the big reveal is that the kids were completely like everybody else before mm -hmm. they did that, mm -hmm. and they realized the teachers, like, would treat the kids, you know, like a hundred different ways, just slightly differently, mm -hmm. in ways that would enable them to actually really thrive and mm -hmm. flourish on a level that the other kids didn't. And the teachers weren't even aware of mm -hmm. this. And I wonder if that's part of what happens in medicine that when you had sort of. Um, that when you have some sort of you know like health and healing professional, um, and they, you know they they think that somebody's exceptional, or in their mind they're like this person is going to beat this, they're going to get through mm, it, they're going, mm -hmm. they're curable, they're they're yes. going that um, they end up transmitting that in you know like a hundred different ways that they don't even realize they're transmitted mm. to a patient, and in some way the patient receives that and activates their immune system or whatever it may be to actually change. Absolutely. The, um, the healing outcome. Absolutely. I feel like uh, one of the things you asked, kind of what I'm exploring, what I'm playing yeah. with a little bit right now, is um, this connection between my work as a midwife and my work as a physician, right? So when you midwife someone, labor is not always easy. Stuff, Life stuff comes up in pregnancy, mm. sort of how we live and our, our backstory can impact how we birth. And, um, and, and there's a lot of need for support. And so a lot of what I did as a midwife was hold that space where I believed in the other person, even when their belief in themselves was faltering. Mm -hmm. 
right? It's like, I, I can see this happening for you and I'm going to be here with you no matter what. So there was like relationship, connection, someone holding space, and then transmitting that. I, I believe in you. It was interesting. Recently, I had a patient who came in and she's been sick for a lot of her life. And um, I asked her, um, so what is, what is being well look like to you? Mm. And she just kind of diverted. She was like, right back to talking about her symptoms, right? Mm. And like, why is this happening to me? So I reiterated, I was like, so what does being well look like yeah. to you? And she, she had no idea what she I was... She couldn't even like conceive it. She yeah. couldn't. Is there, there, there's got to be this really interesting dynamic. Maybe I'm just totally making this up. Where it's like you want to hold this hope. You want to project it. You want to allow somebody to believe that after you know, like living with illness, with pain, whatever mm-hmm. it may be, for decades, maybe the, as, as far back as they can remember, mm-hmm. they can't remember health, there's hope. Yeah. Right? At the same time, um, is there a risk of setting somebody else someone up yeah. with false hope. This is a um, brilliant question. Yeah, like, and how do you work through that? Yeah, so I'm a sort of an incredible pragmatist and I really have honest conversations with, with people about that. And I think that's what that question is, what does wellness mean to you? Because mm. if somebody says to me, I've had 10 out of 10 pain my whole life and it started when I had a skiing accident and I had eight fractured vertebrae and now they're fused and every time the weather is damp. I'm like, okay, so what can you live with? And if they say to me, well, I want zero out of 10, I'm like, okay, that's probably not realistic. Yeah. What can you live with? And and feel good about that. Yeah. And then let's set a realistic goal. And I'll work with them to set a realistic goal. But then there's also that piece that health is more than just sort of, as the World Health Organization says, like the absence of illness, right? right there's yeah. There's also how we live our lives and how we adjust and how we cope. And I think sometimes what happens is, and this can happen with a lot of things, right? It can happen with a job that you're not happy with or a relationship that you're in and you're stuck in. We get in these mindsets where not only do we have the physical situation that we're dealing with, but then we have our self-talk about it. And sometimes that negative self-talk just amplifies it. So it's like you can have pain and watch a totally hilarious movie. And for that 90 minutes, you forget about your pain. So sometimes it's an attitude shift that I help patients. And that's, that's sometimes the healing. It's going from like, why is this happening to me to, okay, this is happening. This kind of sucks, right? This really, or it really sucks. And I have to adjust to this. How am I going to find the coping skills? It's interesting because I went through like that whole process. I have tinnitus. Mm. Oh, Came out of nowhere like five years ago, four years ago. And, you know, like 50 million people have it, big whoop, 17 million people. I know all stats now after going nuts on it. It's amazing what you learn when you have something, right? Right, and then 2 million people, basically their lives are, they'll tell you their lives are largely destroyed because they have it on level. Oh, yeah. I had so, one patient who tried to kill himself several times And when you go on, when it. you get it, yeah. you start to look online, like, mm. don't don't ever do that. Yeah. <laughs> and there's there's still, we know we don't know why I have it, but it's here mm-hmm. long enough so that we assume it's here for life. So in the beginning, I was one of those people where it was really not good. And uh, and I wasn't sleeping, and it was like brutal, brutal, and it creates this horrible spiral. And and I was try- tried everything, all the like cures, all of this and that, yeah. all the tests, make sure this. And um, and I got to a point where where I was, it was a really dark place. And um, and I kind of said to myself, there was this moment where I was like, all right, if this is me for life, mm-hmm. then what? Mm-hmm. You know, so r- rather than focusing every waking hour on trying to make the sound go away, distract myself from it, you know, like every possible device, you know, like if this is just it, like 
how do I be okay? Mm-hmm. You know, and that was a moment where a lot of things changed. You know, and it wasn't that it went away. It wasn't that yeah. it was easily okay. But that was a moment that I changed my energy being like, all right, let's work on this basic assumption. I'm open to the fact that maybe someday something comes along that makes it go away. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's, it's like a sort of like the Buddhist approach. It's like, okay, you know, if this is my reality, how do I get myself most okay with that? Yes. Um, and so, and then I started to, that had moved me into whole exploration of, mm-hmm. of mindfulness and tinnitus and which I, I sort of developed my own approach through like that practice and mm-hmm. it was transformative for me and now I'm pretty fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was that same place of saying, like, I had to get to a point of absolute surrender. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and also realizing that, you know, okay, the sound in my head is not going to do anything to me. It's not the sound which is mm-hmm. causing the distress. It's my response to the sound. Yes. You know, this could be there for life and have no effect. Yes. It's the, and it's the same thing you were talking about with disease or pain. It's pain especially. And that's where I made the association mm-hmm. because I started reading that, that um, like, pain is there's such a strong psychological element to the way you experience pain mm-hmm. that a lot of the anxiety that you build on top of it is what makes you feel like there's so much more pain. Absolutely. So I was saying to myself, well, could the anxiety that I'm building on top of it make it feel like the sound in my head is that much louder when it really isn't? Mm-hmm. It's just I'm not processing mm-hmm. it as well. And that created like a whole new journey for me. But I had to hit that moment. What um, brought you to that moment? Do you have a sense of like what it was that allowed you to make the shift? Yeah, I hit a point where I was basically like, if this doesn't change, bad things are going to happen. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I, and, and because I, you know, sort of like reasonably studied in Eastern traditions, um, I also kind of like started to really think about those things. And, and then again, probably I started to really also remember, okay, there is, there's an interesting body of work on meditation and mindfulness practice and the experience of pain. Mm. I was like, could this work on, on tinnitus also? Mm. And, and in fact, so I started looking for uh, uh, mindfulness-based cognitive uh, therapists who specialize in tinnitus. Not an easy find, by the way. <laughs> but very specific. Very specific. And I found one guy. Um, he didn't specialize in it, but he had it. And, um, and he had sort of like, you know, worked a bit on himself. And I went in and I'm like, could this work? And he's like, you could. Mm-hmm. It wasn't entirely convincing, but you know, it gave me hope. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, it gave me hope, and I'm like, okay, let me start to play with this. And I had enough of a tradition in understanding the practice and how to build it that I started to really just work with it. It was terrifying in the beginning because mm-hmm. um, the classical instruction is focus on your breath, but then if that thing keeps coming back to you, make that the focus of your practice, mm-hmm. which means I have to focus on the sound, mm-hmm. the one thing that I live and breathe to not hear. You have like an ohm in your head right, all basically. the time. Um, so, you know, it was, it, it was a really interesting process, you wow. know, and it's still, for me, it's a practice, you know, mm-hmm. it is a lifelong practice mm-hmm. and, and I will, like my practice is there not just because it makes me okay and mm-hmm. now it's, and you were saying, you know, like definition of health used to be like, you know, the absence of disease mm-hmm. and for me it was, that was stage one, yes. but then what you find is that this practice then takes you from the absence of disease or at least being okay with whatever it is. To then, like, then the practice starts to add your ability to flourish mm-hmm. on a whole yes. different level. So it actually really just changes the way you exist, the way you relate to people. Um, mm. And on some way, I think going through something like that, it makes you more aware of others' yes. um, sensitivity, more compassionate, I think. Well, when you have something like tinnitus, it's not an obvious thing, right? So to everyone else, you look fine. Right. It's and not that's like part you're of the in a wheelchair part of it. or Nobody can crutches. see or yes. hear what's in your head. Yes. And, you know, and for those who are listening or, or viewing, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's a, literally it's, it's this 
umbrella categorization for a wide variety of sounds that mm. either through a loss of hearing or brain signals, nobody really knows. Mm -hmm. um, your brain starts to generate sounds from the inside out that you hear 24-7. Yeah. And for some people, they're totally fine. They habituate. For some people, it's brutal. For me, mm. I was in the brutal category. Yeah. So it's. I'm um, sorry. I'm glad you're. Yeah, I'm actually like really, really okay yeah. with it now. So, yeah. um, but anyway, and it's it's this interesting balance of of like surrender and hope. And mm. sometimes, it's the surrender that moves you from hoping for one thing mm -hmm. into doing the work to create something mm -hmm. else, which is what you really need at that yes. given point in time. And some of my patients, they come to me with simple, you know, they just want their digestion fixed. Yeah. They don't want to take a deep dive and maybe there's not a reason to. And then we like, we do the probiotics and yeah. the digestive enzymes. But for a lot of people, and especially if they have a chronic illness that they've lived with for a long time, I, I like to think about it, kind of, kind of playing with this term transformational healing, mm. you know, that you can shift your health and shift your life. And sometimes you can shift your life and shift your health. And mm. then it's yeah, it's all one it's big thing. Yeah. 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 Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new Marketing Hub Enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, Use AI to test and optimize and create more personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at HubSpot.com slash Wondery. That's HubSpot.com slash Wondery. Good Life Project is supported by Signature Hardware. So if you're looking for the perfect item to take your kitchen or bathroom or house up a notch, head over to SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. They offer an incredibly wide variety of pieces for every room in your house with more than 20 years experience supplying vanity, sinks, tubs, hardware, plus all the classics, latest styles, and they're in sync with all the trending colors and design touches. And they also have amazing customer service to help guide you through the process so you'll never feel lost or intimidated. Gotta love a company that really stands behind what they offer. Stephanie and I actually picked out a collection of eight furnishings that we love. They're unique and are 100% our style, so maybe you'll like them too. And you can see for yourself at signaturehardware.com slash goodlife. You'll be amazed at the variety and the quality. So visit signaturehardware.com slash goodlife to find your style today. That's signaturehardware.com slash goodlife. Or just click the link in the show notes now. Real life is an all is perfect, but with signature hardware, it is beautiful. So you, you brought up um, a couple things that I want to kind of circle mm -hmm. back to, um, because it, they're really like buzzy words these days, mm -hmm. and they seem to hold some really interesting answers. And, you know, so this is the Good Life Project. So yeah. part of what we explore is like, what are some of the pieces of the puzzle? And health is a huge one, mm -hmm. you know, so, and it seems like there's some major unlock keys that are being explored on a really deep level and probably like functional medicine is to a certain extent leading the charge. And one of the terms mm -hmm. you brought up earlier was a gut biome. And then you mentioned probiotics yes, too. Yes, yes, Tell me a little bit about what this is and what's going on in that space right now. Yeah, so the gut biome is really fun and it's emerging. And part of why I love it because it, it connects me full circle to kind of how I started out with health and medicine, which was 
connecting around food, politics, organic farming. Mm. Um, and it's kind of... So you were a hippie kid. <laughs> I, was, I, I was actually showing some pictures to our nurse practitioner recently on a plane trip, and she actually said, I've never seen anybody that hippie, actually. <laughs> but here's the thing. I'm actually a housing project kid. So I grew up in a New York City housing project. So you're project. like a hippie housing project kid? I'm the housing project kid. I can be like all about it, but... Then I uh, I went to college really young when I was 15. And wait, wait, wait. Went, okay, we had that happen. Okay, so grew up in this housing project. Um, are you from New York? Yeah. Yeah, so for people who don't know New York, I went to this high school called Bronx High School of Science, which right. is like this Fantastic uber competitive, right. right? You test in, it's free. If you get in, you go. And it was like this two-hour commute every day from my projects in Flushing, Queens. Yeah. This is like a legit project. So my husband used to always, before he ever visited, he used to say like, Oh, you're just trying to identify, you know, and I was like, <laughs> okay, we're going to go. And we drove in the neighborhood and his and my kids' jaws just dropped. They were like, mom, my kids were like, mom, you grew up in the hood. <laughs> so I was in this environment. It's pretty rough. Like all the kids on my floor literally ended up in juvie or pregnant or like one died of HIV. So mm. I was this sort of outlier. Talk about the Pygmalion effect, right? Yeah. I was an outlier in a way. In that I was like the science fair kid. I won the science fairs. I won the spelling bees. Mm -hmm. And so in not really so much Pygmalion, like the teachers, I think, loved it, having a kid that wanted to learn. And so I got fostered along in sort of that Pygmalion way where they saw me. I was Eliza Doolittle, um, do a lot, really. Uh But um, so they kind of nurtured me along. I got into science, was at science. And then my first year there, I was like, I really want to be a doctor. And I was doing this heavy commute. I was actually on the debate team. I was like this champion debater at Bronx Science, which was a big deal, commuting back and forth. And I keep stopping you, but there's so many things. So many people never reach a moment where they're like, I really want to be this. Yeah. And at 16, you're like, boom. Yeah, Yeah, I was 14, actually. Yeah, I was 14. And I knew I wanted to be a doctor, and I loved writing. So it was like doctor writing, doctor writing. And um, so I wrote this letter to Johns Hopkins University medical school and said, would you be willing to take me early? And they wrote me back this really, I thought they would ignore me, but they wrote me back this really nice letter. I wish I had it, but I don't. And they said, you're a little young for our medical school and you have to go to college first, (laughs) but here's this great school in Western Massachusetts that takes smart kids. And it was this early college called Simon's Rock. Mm -hmm, I got a scholarship. I went and within about three months I was a hippie kid really hippie kid uh-huh. like I actually grew dreadlocks and like <laughs> I, was, I was in the whole thing but this was 1981 so it was way before there was even something called alternative medicine right yeah so I went there for a year wanted to stick I just got this passion for learning about plants and um I was like learning about factory farming, so I went vegetarian. So it's not just medicine at this point. It's just it's like life. deep dive into environment yes. and how everything connects. Exactly, yeah. So one thing led to another, like learning about food politics led me into learning about health politics and the history of medicine. And the part that really kind of stoked me was the history of medicine and women and midwifery and mm. It was fascinating, and so I just took a left turn, really off this path to, you know, Doogie Hauserdom or something mm-hmm. like that, and moved to Boston. Found a midwife who would apprentice me. She was this midwife working in Roxbury, Massachusetts, which was like kind of like the ghetto experience of Boston. Here I was, this like this white girl taking the, you know, the train to these like 
Rasta Muslim home studying midwifery. It was it was like a pretty radical immersion in yeah. so many things, like how other people live. What's, what what are your parents thinking about like right now? It's like we've got this, we've got yeah. a prodigy, brilliant kid who's going to be a doctor. They go, and then you end up in sort of like, you know, a, a challenged neighborhood. Yeah. Um, in midwifery. Right. Yeah. So I'm just curious because I'm like I'm always processing like okay. How do people handle like the external support systems and the potential judgment when they're sort of along this path? Yeah, so my family, like my my parents were totally disconnected from each other. My dad really was not in my life at all. Mm. And you know, my mom was interesting. Um, she kind of um, rebelled and left her her childhood home not as early as I did. And part of me leaving home was the commute, but also like living with a single mom in a housing project environment. There was a lot of tension. It was pretty fraught. Mm. So in some ways she was probably too hands off, which wasn't the best thing because there was sort of no guidance and no supervision. But on the other hand, it was like, I just went exploring. And I, you know, I kept in touch with her. Um, I had a boyfriend at the time whose parents lived there. His dad is like one of the most famous philosophers living still in the world. And the mom is a philosopher and they had been really alternative. So they kind of let me stay at their house. Mm. And then I, I got a job and I was doing beadwork and selling it in Harvard square for real, for real paying for my midwifery books and my Uh herbal medicine books. And you know, one thing just led to another and I ended up with this amazing, life as a midwife and herbalist kind of before those things were on the map and teaching my clients to eat organic and raise their kids healthy and it was amazing mm. so where what, what trim so that was kind of the journey yeah. no i was right yeah. I, I know i was asking about gut biome so yeah so the gut biome piece is really a powerful kind of revelation i think in modern medicine because the question is really are we the home for all these microorganisms that are living in our gut or, or are they the home Are like, we sheltering them, you know, like who, who's in charge here. Mm. And really um, what it is that we now know that we're inhabited by a bazillion. We actually don't really know how many, but multiple millions of various microorganisms that have innate intelligence to the point where, for example, a colony of one kind of organisms can recognize that there's a dominant colony of another kind of organisms that might use up all the food. So they go into a more dormant state. They don't proliferate as much. We know that the microbiome in our gut, so the microbiome is sort of the term that encompasses sort of almost like the whole of all the different organisms almost functioning like an organ or a community within us. And they're part of us. They're not really separate from us. We're just cohabitating our our bodies right and our planet and what what's really fascinating is we know that they do so many things for example there have been studies looking at mental health and microflora so the kinds of gut that one person have gut flora that one person have are going to be different than another person and depending on what you have in your gut it may make you more anxious or more depressed or they may utilize your food and create different gases that affect right. your mental health. Or, um, for example, two different people can have an identical diet, an identical, they can be twins. They can be identical twins with the same diet, 
the same exercise, but one, let's say, went to Mexico and got some kind of like Montezuma's revenge, came back with a disrupted gut flora, and now they're gaining all this weight on the exact same sort of caloric intake and expenditure. Just because just the flora they have in their different gut is different. Flora. Yeah. yeah. So it's really fascinating. Um, another thing that the gut flora are really important for is metabolizing estrogen. So for women's health problems, a lot of things like PMS and fibroids and fertility problems and the polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is sort of like yeah. a combination of diabetes and hormone problems, um, all have, the microflora all has a role in it. Right. So again, yeah. I, and it seems like there's, I keep hearing about it all over the place. Um, <laughs> yeah. And having had some exposure to, to you know, the functional medicine um, world for probably going on 20 years now, like the very, very earliest mm-hmm. days, um, it the term is not new. Or no. maybe microbiome is a relatively newer term, but like, you know, really focusing a lot on gut and gut flora. And, yeah. Um, so it's kind of interesting because for you guys, it's almost like, yes, now the world is like, <laughs> finally, like, you know, like, the microbiome is sexy. Yes, and Like everybody exactly. wants to know yes, about it. Yes, your gut and, like, and your poop is sexy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, it's so fascinating too because the things that you just said was connected to, I think for um, a lot of people would be counterintuitive. Okay, we get that maybe it helps in digestion and, yeah. and but you know, like, okay, critters in your intestine make you either anxious or OCD or depressed or mm-hmm. calm or relaxed mm-hmm. or serene or able to handle stress better. So yes. like, there's a direct tie-in between the things that are living in your intestine and your state of mind. Yes, and between your state of mind and the things that are living in your intestine. So, for example, if you have a lot more stress, then you're you're not getting as good gut um, as good b- blood flow to your gut lining, mm. and so that affects the quality of what's in there, and that affects the quality of the food uh, or the pH, for example, of that environment. So that can shift what's growing in there. Yeah. If you're stressed and not making the best food choices, for example, that can also affect because a lot of sugar feeds certain gut bugs more than it feeds others, and that can throw things out of balance. So it goes round and round. And you know what I love about it, too, is that there's so much more consciousness about food and organics Mm. and the environment, right? And a big piece of my evolution and what I believe in as a physician and a healer is that what happens in our communities, what happens on our planet, what happens to our soil. It affects us. We affect it. And so there's so many parallels, right? When we think about um, agriculture and we think about organic agriculture and we think about building a healthy compost pile to feed the soil or putting good nutrients in the soil and like the plants flourish compared to poor agricultural practices like growing one food in the same field year after year, pouring on pesticides and depleting the soil, the exact same things happen in our body. So if Mm. we eat good quality food, we actually build, there's literally like a soil base in the intestines that this microflora lives on and Mm -hmm. thrives on. And then the more variety of foods that we eat, of healthy foods that we eat, the more variety of good gut flora we have. And then kind of the parallel to the pesticides is the more antibiotics we take, which are like so overused. It's Mm, actually considered antibiotic resistance. It's like this major global crisis, yet we just keep pouring them on and they're affecting us and they're affecting the environment. So, Can you, I mean, and I guess it's such a complex ecosystem. Um, Where do you even start to... Like, figure it out. I mean, it's, it seems yeah. like also we're in such, like, the early stages of really understanding what's happening there. Absolutely. But, um, 
Well, I guess maybe let me back up and mm-hmm. even question more. So, you know, in theory, if you're coming out of like when you're first born, you're coming out of your mother relatively sterile. Yeah. Um, where does that or bacteria not. come from? Yeah. Like so. initially, like how does as a bacteria populate the microbiome yeah. in the can beginning? Can we say vagina? On you can. Show? Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> so we're really not sterile when we come out. We shouldn't be sterile when we come uh-huh. out. So we come out. And, you know, our, our faces and our heads are coming all smushy through our mom's vagina and we get bacteria up our nose and in our mouth. And it sounds really gross, but it's true. And so we're coming out of this very not sterile environment and we're getting colonized as we come out. So that's like the initial colonization. It is the initial colonization. And then if we breastfeed, this is one of the coolest things to me. So it used to be thought even just a decade ago or so that breast milk was basically sterile. It was just protein and uh, fats and and nutrients and antibodies. But now we know that not only is breast milk teeming with microorganisms, but every mom's microorganisms are different. And not only that, they adjust to her baby's needs. Hmm. So the microorganisms of a breastfeeding mom who has a premature baby, for example, will adapt based on that interaction between the baby's mouth, the baby's flora, and the mom's milk. It's crazy. How does that happen? <laughs> I don't even know. I mean, this really new research, um, but it's, it's really fascinating. I, I, I get so, it's so fun to get to do something where I'm just kind of geeked out right. all the time, like this wonder and fascination, and then I get to use it and, and make a difference with it. So we're not sterile. And part of what we're seeing is that like right now in the United States, we have over a 34% C-section rate. So one in three babies is born by C-section. Mm-hmm. Every C- for every C-section, just for protecting mom from infection because it's major abdominal surgery, mom gets an antibiotic, which means mom's getting it, Into baby's the, right, getting, baby's it. getting it. And then that affects mom's breast milk too. So not only is baby getting a dose, but mom's getting a dose. So we know that babies born by, by C-section, for example, are more likely to develop eczema and asthma. And we know that if they're treated with a probiotic at birth, they're actually less likely to develop that problem. Mm. But interestingly, um, we also know that babies born by C-section, for example, later are more likely to develop things like inflammatory bowel disease, which is totally related to the gut flora, Mm -hmm. and even obesity, which is also related to the gut flora. So, you know, for me, the work that I still do, I'm, I'm not practicing as a midwife anymore, but as a physician and a functional medicine doctor is partly around this advocacy of how do we help more women who can birth naturally, birth vaginally, because it really does have an impact on this next generation. Right. And does that mean also that, um, well, I guess of course it means this, but um, that, that a mom, um, what they're eating throughout pregnancy is going to have a pretty substantial impact on their child's, their newborn's It definitely flora. can. Absolutely. The gut flora, immunologic changes that happen. Right. There's even some suggestion that moms, that babies' taste preferences are formed in mm. the womb by just chemicals from the foods that baby gets in on their palate. Right. So definitely, yes. So do dads play a role in this at all? <laughs> yeah, they do. You know, it's interesting. Um, I had a kid come into the practice just this, just recently and the baby's four months old and has pretty severe eczema. And mom has no symptoms at all, but dad, when they conceived the baby, was at the worst flare of digestive problems and eczema he'd ever had in his mm. life. So we were talking about it. And we definitely know that, you know, DNA affects baby from, from dad and from mom. So we know things mm. like smoking and, um, you know, dad's kind of whole life leading up to getting 
to mom getting pregnant yeah. um, can definitely have an impact. And I, and I guess also, you know, like sort of like um, you know, epigenetics these days. Yeah. Another big um, term, isn't right, it? Huge. Yeah. I guess like that's the other, like such a big buzzword yeah. and that, you know, the last thing that I saw, and I'm curious whether you know whether this is true or not, was someone saying that, you know, so, so if you accept the basic argument that your genes are not your fate, but the, the state of your genes yeah. are your fate and that you actually have a, a significant amount of control over whether certain genes are turned on or turned off and they become yes. expressed and cause all sorts of different things from disease to flourishing. Um, and that a lot of, whether it's turned off or turned off, is, is lifestyle choices. It is. Um, and that it's, 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 the last thing that I'm reading is like, is that it's heritable. Like the state, whether it's turned on or turned off, is actually then passed on generations. Is it that is. valid? So, so it's interesting. I had a patient the other day who said, I know I'm always going to be fat. My mom was fat. My grandmother was fat. And she said, mm. it's just in my genes. So we started talking about this. And we started talking about it's not just the genes that are inherited. It's the food choices. It's the lifestyle choices, right? So if mom and grandma ate certain foods, you probably grew up eating those foods. So those genes actually got turned on from the very beginning. Right. And that turned on state is actually inherited. It can't. Yes, absolutely. And right. we know that that can start in pregnancy, whether mom gets enough folic acid, for example, and the proper kinds, certain foods that the moms get. But I also want to be careful. It's so easy to start um, uh, feeling super guilty or like for people right. to feel really pressured. It's like, okay, like these things I did 10 years ago yeah. are now going to affect two generations from that. Right. Like, well, it's interesting. Like some of the studies recently that have been coming out looking at kids and autism, because the rate has just gone up to one in 68 kids is oh now considered on the spectrum. Huge, big report that just came out. And one of the considerations about what might be causing this has nothing to do with mom and baby, but actually grandmom. So did grandmom smoke and how did that affect the eggs that I got? Because my, as a woman, right, your eggs are formed and are fully there when you're in your own mom. So Mm -hmm. basically my eggs were already there when I was in my mom. And so what, so what my grandma did affected my mom, affected me. And so we're looking at generations of, so I want to be careful that people, I want, I want my patients, I want people who are listening to feel like, yes, I can totally transform my life. But then there's also some, there's almost an act, an aspect if we're really serious about this of activism that has to come in because there's just a ton of stuff in the environment that is doing this to us that we're not doing to ourselves. So I I mean, it's like, you can't take a fatalist approach where it's like, okay, we have two generations that have given me this, not just the gene, but the turned on state for, Mm -hmm. you know, like, which increases my, you know, like the propensity for obesity or something like that. Like then the, uh, like the big lingering question is like, can I do something? Mm-hmm. Is there a behavior? Is there a lifestyle changes or nutrition? Is there something I can do to change that state or to turn yes. it off or whatever it may yes. be? Or is that just, it is what it is? You know, I, I, I figure it this way. We're just figuring this out now, right? Yeah. Like we didn't even know genes existed no, until like 1960. Like, right? <laughs> Everything is changing all the time. And there are so many reasons to have good lifestyle choices. It makes us feel good. It's good, healthy for the environment. You know, it's just, there's, so many reasons that doing it in a sort of goal-oriented way, the evidence may change in 10 years. So do it because it feels good and do it because you want to. And I, I just can, I tell my patients all the time, like, let's look at this as a great experiment. Mm. You know, this is a great experiment in, in doing everything we can to optimize your ability to thrive and yeah. be vital. And, um, how do, I think there's a t- how do they deal with that? Because they're going to want to hear, no, just tell me it's going to be okay. Like, tell me I can like do this. I 
I love it. Okay. You know, I really okay. like I, I had a, a patient who wrote me an email recently and he's struggled with some pretty serious depression and um, a very intense fear of death for mm-hmm. about 10 years. And he said, you know, nobody's really ever listened before, like mm-hmm. really listened. And then kind of just given me a ray of hope that I wasn't alone in this that you're not like selling me a bill of goods. Like I can actually trust what you're saying because you're right here with me. It was this beautiful email, but it was like, okay, we're in this together. We're going to experiment. You're going to get, you're going to get some better. Right. And let, let's kind of see where this goes together. I think people get, they get excited about it. Yeah. And there's a powerful <laughs> word again, hope. <laughs> yeah. And, and I see so many people get better. Like sometimes I'm at work and I'm just, I, I really, I've actually asked patients. I've actually said to people like, are you really that much better or are you just telling me that because you think I want to hear it? And like, and I'll say to my patients, like, don't ever BS me. This is your time. You're paying to be here. All I ever want to hear is the truth. Like if it's not working for you, if this diet lifestyle plan, too many supplements, whatever it is, tell me because it's got to work for you. And they're like, no, I'm really, I'm not having migraines that I've had for 15 years or like I have regular digestion now or I, my anxiety has gone and I'm off of these medications that I've been on for 15 years. I'm like, mm. I, I still get like, really? Really? Because right. all this stuff I learned in medical school that can't be changed or altered. So much of it can. Mm. I don't always know the why. I, I don't always know what things could be measured in a study. I don't know how much of it is instilling hope and how much of it's the probiotic or the magnesium or the, you know, what it is. But yeah. Or maybe it's just all together. You I know, think it there's is. some sort of just. Gestalt. Symbiotic thing yes. that goes on. It's interesting you're telling about, um, you're like, it, are, is it really legit? I, um, a friend of mine's a chiropractor, uh-huh. but he's much more than a chiropractor, and it's like just multimodal. And, um, and, and he'll ask you, like, after he treats you, like, after a session, he'll be like, okay, do this. And how much better is it? Oh, it's, it's better. And he's like, give me a percentage. Uh-huh. And you're like, yeah, it's this percentage better. And like, why are you asking that? He's like, because anything less than 20%, you're just trying to please me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's yeah. like, I know that. So he's like, anything less than that, I just write it off as mm-hmm. it's not real. Yeah. You know, and it's, <laughs> I think it's a similar thing probably. It is. The flip side is really interesting too. Like we do these medical symptom questionnaires. Mm-hmm. And I saw this when I was in conventional practice too, where we had these depression questionnaires that were kind of like mandated for our clinic. And sometimes people get so used to being sick for so long that they don't realize they're getting better until you kind of lay it out. And and you're like, wow, okay, so you used to have migraines every day and now you're having them only once every three weeks. And they're like, oh, yeah. Or like, wow, I used to not have a bowel move. Bowel move is like a big deal for people, right? Like I used to not have one except every three days and now I'm going once or twice a day. And, And you point it out and they're like, wow. I actually am feeling better, mm. but they got stuck in a, a role because it sometimes certain roles become part of a way of life, and they also become ways that other people around us right. and start you, to relate to, be, you to define us. Define yourself by exactly sort of like, right, and you define those relationships, and yeah. people define you by how you've been for you. Mm-hmm. The big piece of what happens in functional medicine, ideally, in good medicine, ideally, is creating a partnership. Mm. Right? It's not, and that's I think part of the woman-centered model. It's not me doing it to you or me doing it for you. It's us doing this together. Mm. And what's, how do I get your buy-in in it? Right. And if the patient isn't 
following the plan. Like there are a lot of people out there that are labeled difficult patients. And I, I like to step away from that and say, okay, well, what does that mean when a doctor says someone's a difficult patient? It usually means they're not following the things that the doctor told them to do. It's like a difficult toddler or mm. teenager. You're not picking up your room when I told you to. Why are you not doing that? And for me, it's like, okay, well, what about the plan isn't working for you if you're not able to right. follow it? Like, did I not explain it well? Is it too complicated? Is it too expensive? Are you feeling too unwell to cook for yourself? How do we, how do we shift that so that you can get lit up by this and get yeah. engaged and and probably simply the fact that you're asking mm. it changes everything i hope so you know i, I mean I've, I've seen that with different people that i've worked with where i would probably have labeled them difficult mm -hmm. you know whether it's an entrepreneur whether it's somebody that come there whether i'm consulting with somebody and and they're and like they're blowing up and that and then you just like you realize at a certain point that um for some people they're never heard or seen at any other place in their lives. And what they're struggling so mightily is just to be seen, mm -hmm. just to be heard. Yeah. And a huge part of the process of like changing the experience for them of being a difficult person and for you of them, them being difficult is actually instead of trying to rush them out as fast as possible because they're difficult <laughs> pains in the asses and you don't want to be around them. Yeah. Which trust me, I've like It happens. I've been there and I've I've been on both sides of that equation. Yeah. Um you're like, okay, let me just hit reset on the way that I'm gonna move into this mm -hmm. engagement and let me just create space and listen and just like ask questions mm -hmm. and let them talk. And it, it, I found that there's like a magic that happens when you do that where it's just the fact that you're the only one in their lives that's actually shutting up and holding space and listening mm -hmm. and asking them questions that are reflecting the fact that you're actually listening and responding to them. It's powerful. That alone like makes a huge shift. And that person who's like the big, the difficult person mm -hmm. all of a sudden becomes somebody who's like, you, you know, you develop a really treasured relationship mm -hmm. with. Absolutely. As soon as you just like unlock some yeah. wicked cool it's story so cool that's that like, yeah, yeah it's, you know, like the person who was adopted at five and had this hard knocks yeah. life and you would never have known it. Or you know, recently I was talking with someone and it's an amazing woman and I found out she had had melanoma eight years ago and I'm like, oh, okay, that's where that little kernel of like life perspective comes from in this person who's kind of faced death, right? Like they faced the situation. Good Life Project is supported by BetterHelp. So many of us are going through a lot right now and could really use someone to talk to. And friends and family, they can be great. But talking with someone who is truly qualified to help you feel better can be a real game changer. And BetterHelp can do just that. They're the world's largest online counseling service. You can get started no matter where you are in the world quickly. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Then you schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort, privacy, and safety of your own space. And they make it easy and free to change counselors if you feel you'd like to try someone else. BetterHelp also gives you access to an incredible range of expertise, which might not be available where you are. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid may be available. So visit betterhelp.com slash goodlife. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash goodlife. And join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. And as a special offer for Good Life Project listeners, you'll get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash goodlife. 
like you. I think yeah. you love stories. I do. You love stories. I love yeah. them too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm always curious about like people's stories and their whys, which is, yeah. so what was the kernel for you? What was that little kernel that lit you up? Um, in, in which, it, when, when I was younger? Right. Or? When you were younger, but also like in, with what you're doing now, because you were clearly, you're sitting here and you're lit up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I really love life. And um, I feel a lot of gratitude. It, maybe it just comes naturally. Sometimes I have to work at it. Sometimes I have to find the gratitude. Um, what is it? It's the kernel. Um, I think it's two things. One is, have you ever, have you ever heard Mary Oliver's poem? No. She's an she's a older woman. She's in her 80s. She's a, a beautiful poet. I'm gonna get you one. Awesome. Of, I'm gonna get you some of her poems. But in one of her poems, she asks the question: "So tell me, what is it you're gonna do with your one wild and precious life?" Mm. And I think about that, right? I, I I've had a, a not too wild ride, but kind of a cool ride. And I do really feel like my life is precious. And I'm sort of a quintessential healer. Like I don't feel at rest in myself unless I'm engaged in service too. So. I get to do what I love. Like I get to live a life where I'm nurturing and helping people. I get to be the doctor that I wanted to be. I get to be a writer and um, see people transform and see them get lit up. So maybe that's what it is. Maybe mm. maybe I have to think out loud, but I think it's seeing people get lit up and mm. feeling like if there's one little bit of my wild and precious life that can take one little bit of suffering down a few notches for someone else, that, that really lights me up. Mm-hmm. And I get, and I'm geeked out about the stuff, so it's fun. Right. It's like, it's fun. Right. The it's science really... door side and prong science, yeah. come on. It's yeah. just like this continuation exactly. of just like clearly you have a massive love of learning and discovery. I and, do. Uh, and I do. I have a lot of wonder, a lot of curiosity. I think that's a, a bit of it for me too is, yeah. you know, when I've got something going on with myself, if I'm like stressing out too much or down on myself, I, I try to get curious about it rather than judge it. Mm. And I try to get curious about other people rather than judge. And I think that's all. Okay, so which brings up a really interesting thing. And I've been having this conversation with a couple of people lately. It's around this idea of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, because I have, after, you know, we've been doing this for about two years now. And, and I'm always looking for sort of like common patterns and traits uh-huh. and words that people use all the time. Uh-huh. So people who are out there really shaking the world and doing big things and loving what they're doing, like, what are the drivers behind that? And curiosity is, is very likely mm-hmm. the single biggest mm-hmm. common shared trait. But I hesitate to call it a trait. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I got really curious and I was having this <laughs> conversation with somebody recently and I was like, is curiosity trainable? Like, do you just have it or not have it? Mm-hmm. And if you have it, you're that person who devours knowledge and you want to learn and you just excel and fly and make yeah. a difference. Um, and if you don't have it, is it trainable? Like, can you teach curiosity? So I did a little bit of a deep dive, but in the early stages, but I have to do a lot more. What do you think? I'm a geek also. What do you think? And I came upon this one paper and um, from somebody who kind of broke it into two things. He, he defined it as state curiosity. Meaning, like, you're the person who just, from the time you were two, you wanted to know everything. Yeah. You were asking questions. You, you were the kid that wouldn't shut up because you were always me. asking questions. <laughs> right? And then there's, tra- there's trait curiosity, which is like, you get curious about a very particular thing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but you're not just genuinely like curious about the world. It's mm-hmm. like you go down the rabbit hole mm-hmm. in this one particular rabbit hole. Um, which kind of helped me a little bit with the understanding of, but it still didn't really, yeah, the still question for me is, can you train either of those? Mm. Um, and my, my sense is that state curiosity, if, if in fact we accept that that is sort of like a 
dual existence there. It, it's probably fairly difficult to train, but mm -hmm. trade curiosity, because the language you used was, you know, like, how do I talk to myself in a way to reframe it as how can I be curious about this mm -hmm. rather than something else? So it's almost like you're, you're going through an, a, a mental process yes. to incite curiosity somewhere where your approach would have been something other than curiosity. Absolutely. Like I was one of those kids. I mean, I would literally have three projects going on at one time. Like my mom would say, even as a little tiny girl, like I never just watched TV. I was watching TV and knitting or writing a book or mm -hmm. something. And I've, I was the kid who went around the neighborhood collecting rocks and got some goggles when I was like six and was cracking them open with a hammer. <laughs> I, I created an electromagnet in third grade. I was really curious about the world around mm -hmm. me. And at the same time, um, I make curiosity about the things that would sometimes become obstacles. And I'm not always good at it. Sometimes they're just obstacles and I'm just whining and moaning like the nice yeah. person. But um, I do believe that curiosity is something that can be shared as a concept with someone who may just have not thought about it before. It's like people who haven't thought about what wellness means to them. Maybe they just never thought, oh, I can think about this a different way rather than seeing my labor pain as this horrible thing that's attacking me. Mm. I can get curious, like, hmm, what does that feel like? A lot of like what you did sounds like with the tinnitus. Yeah. Let me go into it right. rather than away from it because it's like the path yeah. of least resistance. You're going in, you're doing that deep dive, which I love that expression. I've been using that a lot lately. It really says a lot about how I'm kind of thinking about things or feeling about things. So it is one of the things I'll say to my patients actually or just people I'm working with in consulting and counseling is, okay, so like there's a problem here we can like look at it as a problem, right? Or we can get curious, yeah. right? It's like math. You can say, oh my God, this is a problem or it's a puzzle. Is it a problem or is it a puzzle? So right. it's just a reframe. And I think that it's a habit, right? Like anything is a habit. If you try to reframe often enough, then it does sort of become a way of life. Yeah. And I like, I'm glad you brought up the term reframe because yeah. that is a huge, I think that's the tool. Mm. You know, that is, I think that's a tool that's, some people just have, some people don't have, but it's, it's an absolutely mm -hmm. teachable process. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you identify, like, here's the circumstance. Maybe I can change it, maybe I can't. But I'm telling a story and asking a certain, I'm asking certain questions and telling a certain story mm -hmm. and giving certain answers about this circumstance. Are there other questions? Are there other stories that I can tell? Are there other answers mm -hmm. that I can pull out of it? Mm -hmm. That process, outside of like the world of therapy, which uses it on a, on a regular and highly effective yeah, maybe basis. Art. Right, maybe art, yeah. but like in out there in the common world, especially in, it's funny because I operate a lot in the world of entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and business, it's not taught. Mm -hmm. It's just not taught. And it is such a massively important process, especially um, in spaces of innovation and stuff like this, where mm -hmm. you've got like constant things which are going to rock you mm -hmm. and throw you back. And if you don't learn to reframe and ask the questions that allow you to see the possibility, not just the disruption, but mm -hmm. disruption and then, okay, what's the possibility yeah. behind the disruption? Mm -hmm. You're dead in the water. But I think it's a, it's a bigger life skill also. So I'm it's glad you just made the link between, between reframing and curiosity because mm -hmm. that's, I guess that's sort of like one of the big tools. Yeah. We could talk for a long time about this. I know, we could. It's, fun. <laughs> it's not taught in medicine either. And I think this is one of the shifts that functional medicine has the potential to make mm. in the way medicine is practiced in... Um, you know, there's naturopathy, there's herbal medicine, there are acupuncture, there are a lot of different modalities out there that are really great. Mm -hmm. 
medicine, uh, conventional medicine is so fixed in its mindset, right? This is how we do it. It's always been done this way. And if we can prove in a study that's good enough, that also sort of reflects our belief system and reinforces our belief system. Mm. Okay, maybe we'll make a change. And one of the beauties about functional medicine is that it's a language that is recognizable to conventional physicians. It's a biomedical language. It allows for spirituality. It allows for personal growth. That's all part of it. That should be part of good medicine too. But I'm kind of excited about this little bit of a Trojan horse possibility. Like, ah, on the surface, it's a gift. And it is a gift. Um, But it may start to allow a reframe. And I, but until conventional medicine as a system allows itself to get curious, Mm. then it's sort of fixed in its own problems, right? And there's a lot of problems. So I'm hoping that that as a system, like, can a system get curious? Yeah. You know, can a system shift? It's a fascinating question. My, my, and obviously you're so much more tapped into this than I am, but from, so I'm on the opposite, I'm on the consumer side. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I talk to a lot of consumers. Um, and, uh, my sense is that, um, that there is such a vast and gr- and deep and growing increase in curiosity among the general population mm-hmm. about alternative approaches. That, Absolutely. that may be the thing that then sort of like reverse engineers. It's going to be more of a groundswell mm-hmm. from the, the patient who's driving like the demand for a different approach, a yeah. more curious approach up through, um, the practitioner. Absolutely. And it's so funny. I was talking to my husband recently and I use that term reverse engineering. Like, how do we reverse engineer? How do we say, okay, well, what's it, to me when I think about it, it's like, okay, well, what's the goal? <clears throat> what are the actions that are required to get to that goal? And then what's the mindset or the spiritual approach or the emotional space that allows you to either meet those actions to shape the goal or gets in the way of it. Mm-hmm. And if the goal of medicine is really to serve and heal, it's, that's not what most people are finding right now. Mm-hmm. My wish is that medicine would switch, shift because of curiosity and reverse engineering I think that the shift is going to come because conventional medicine recognizes that the alternative world is just an absolute cash cow and the medicine as an industry, because it's, it's really not healthcare. It's a medical industry in right. truth. And I say that as someone trained in it, like yeah. what's the bottom line? How do we get the most patients in? How do we get people out of the hospital quick enough to turn beds over? Like we, we used to be given these little cash incentives to get patients out fast enough in the morning. No kidding. Wow. To, yeah, and huh. so you'd end up with these high rates of patients coming back in sicker because they got sent home too early. Right, yeah. It's a big problem. Um, but so there's a lot of financial incentive and there's a lot of financial boon happening in the alternative world. So that partly may be what shift things, shifts things. Also, I think as human beings, like we really, most of us, I think if we're pretty healthy, like connection. Mm. And most people that went into medicine went in with some altruistic intent. And then when they come out, that altruism is largely lost. This is really well documented, actually. Mm. And then people go along their lives. And at some point, they either just sort of become what they didn't want to become, or they realize that what they've become is out of harmony with their authenticity and their integrity, and they get really unhappy with what they're doing. And then they start looking for something different. Mm. And so many doctors are so unhappy. Like 90% of family or primary care doctors surveyed recently 
said they would encourage their kids not to go into medicine. Really? Wow, yeah. that is a huge statement. So I think if people get... That's, that's so sad. Yeah, because they're feeling like they're paper pushing all the time and they've got yeah. seven minutes and it's not like they can just... It's not, it's not nourishing to them. They go home unsatisfied. And so I'm hoping it's the relational piece that yeah. gets people curious. Yeah, mm. yeah. it was so fascinating. I, I mean, I'm kind of... Um, I'm excited for what, what appears to be pretty tremendous amount of grassroots disruption yeah um, in, there's shifts in, in, happening in the industry and yeah i think if we're, if we're having this conversation again in 10 years hopefully we will yeah you know reflecting back i think it's going to be just really fascinating to see how things evolve totally because it seems like the pace of change is picking up a it's lot huge. too i'm really i think that's another piece for me i'm hugely encouraged like actually would we even really have this conversation 10 years ago yeah. right things were so fringe back then and now it's like Walmart's talking about having organics it's, mm -hmm. it's I mean I know there's politics there but it's exciting to think that this is becoming a household kind of concept right getting well is becoming thriving mm -hmm. even not just getting well but thriving is becoming yeah. more of a goal and across the spectrum I mean there's medicine there's like the, the world of positive psychology yes. didn't exist not too long ago no. you know until Martin Seligman like stands right? up and says like the cake is half baked and we're going to bake the other half yeah. um yeah, so I think there's all this convergence going on, you know, mm -hmm. where it's it's not about the lack of disease or the lack of illness. You're like that's part of it for mm -hmm. sure, but like we don't just leave people there. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like now let's take them from baseline to plus one hundred mm -hmm. and figure out and how to I, do it. I'd love to see this shift kind of meet in the middle, and that there is this tremendous shift of consciousness happening, and then it's also it's easy to. Um, forget that we have a higher rate of diabetes and obesity than ever even with the shifting we have a higher c-section rate than ever we have like one of the worst infant mortality rates in the world it's like mm. so how do we and so much of that happens at socioeconomic groups that aren't accessing some of the shifts that some of us are really much more easily able to make and so how do we make it global right how do mm. we get get health care shifted so that it's thinking about everyone getting this not just people who can pay out of pocket yeah. that's exciting to me too yeah that would be tremendous yeah, you know, yeah. equal access to the, the level of care mm -hmm. that these days not a lot of people can yeah. actually get yeah and i think one of the things i realized too is that um there's so much talk about improvements in healthcare, but it's almost like give it for conventional medicine like how do we give more people more access but if it's more access to answers to the wrong questions right exactly it, who needs it like what more people are going to get diabetes medications that they don't need more yeah. people are going to get statins that they don't need that cause diabetes and yeah. um you know more kids are going to get medications they don't need for diagnoses that don't have when it's just really a system not supporting them so yeah, it's so funny because there's so many business analogies like when <laughs> um the, I, I, i've had clients come to me and they're like okay we want to hire you to market we need you like bring in as many people as you can i'm like okay but let's actually look at like what's your business and then like i'll, I'll look at what their model and they're like okay they have a box where for every dollar that's coming in they're making 90 cents mm -hmm. why on earth would you want to put more dollars in that box mm -hmm. you know so it's kind of like a similar thing first fix exactly. the box yes like first fix the box and now let's then let's drive as many people into that thing yeah. which is putting out more than it's taking in you know, like then bring it on and now i'm all about like okay let's just get out of that box and 
Let's build a geodesic yeah, totally dome. Totally different. Yeah, <laughs> build yeah. something different. Break it, shatter it. Yeah, I mean, Very there's cool. importance. There's importance to what exists, but I, I don't know that we need to fix that model. I think this is what we're doing. We're creating something new. Mm. Yeah, it's sort of like Bucky Fullminster. He's like, just build totally. something bigger yep, around yep. it and let the other thing go where it needs to go. Exactly. Yeah, so exactly. interesting. The name of this project is The Good Life Project. Mm. Um, when I offer that term out to you, to live a good life, what does it mean? Mm. So, I think for me, if I am living a really good life, I'm able to be really present and being present helps me live a really good life. And what I mean by that is, if my life is good, or if I'm creating a good life, I can be where I am in the moment because I'm not distracted by worries, I'm not distracted by the next thing I have to do, and so I can really be here right now with you, or I can be right there with my partner, or right there with my kids, or right there with my patients. And I think if I'm doing that, then hopefully, the person I'm in that relationship with in that moment feels that I've cared. And I think a good life for me, if I were to get to the end of my life and say, did I live a good life? I would hope people would say, wow, she really cared. Like I really felt like she was there with me. And, and in that encompasses just big love, you know, big hearted love, listening, compassion, right? Cause when I'm present, I'm able to, kind of do all that um yeah so i think that's that's probably what it is presence mm -hmm. yeah awesome yeah thank you so much thank so you give you a hug of course <laughs> thank mm -hmm. you thanks for gathering stories and sharing oh, them it's, it's a beautiful pleasure. thing i'm jonathan fields my guest today has been aviva ram awesome functional medicine doc and cool human being <laughs> signing off for good life project